The Bible reading this morning is from the first two chapters of the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath bowed me in forever. 
but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayers rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Thank you for that wonderful reading. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning willing to hear your word, and we pray, Lord, to be transformed by your word. We just pray, Lord, clear our minds and our hearts of all distractions and fill us with that word. Transform us so that we go out into this world a people who love and acknowledge you and do amazing things in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. The young missionary had every reason to run away. From his little blue Volkswagen, he watched two armed guards stop and search every car at the border crossing. Beyond them was Yugoslavia. Like other Eastern European nations in 1957, it was in the grip of communism. And who did the communists particularly hate? Christians. They'd uh, kick you out of school or they would um, shut down your church. But the young missionary wanted to do good by obeying Jesus' command to go out and make disciples of all nations, even communist ones. The problem was, packed inside his car were things far more dangerous than a gun or bullets. Can you imagine what that was? Bibles, plenty of them. His VW was bulging with them. And knowing that he was pursuing a dangerous path, the missionary, the young missionary, did the one thing left to him. He prayed. Lord, he said, in my luggage I have scripture that I want to take to your children across this border. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now, I pray, make seeing eyes blind Do not let the guards see those things. You do not want them to see. Shifting gears, he purred the Volkswagen towards the border crossing, where the two armed guards began their search. The first guard combed through the missionary's sleeping bag and tent, where he'd stashed some of those Bible tracts. Again, the missionary prayed, Lord, make those seeing eyes blind. The guard looked down and looked and looked and looked, but he didn't see anything. The second guard then asked the missionary to pull out his suitcase full of clothes. Obediently, he did so, then watched as the guard lifted his belongings to expose more Bible tracks. As the guard stared down, there was a long moment of silence before he asked the missionary if there was anything else to declare. Only small things, the missionary said. The guard then handed back his passport, waved him through, and the missionary drove into a country desperate for God's word. 
It's an incredible story, isn't it? The amazing thing is the miracle um, here inspired further miracles. It inspired him to keep on doing it. Not only did the young missionary go into Yugoslavia, but then he went on to Hungary, East Germany, Bulgaria, uh, then on to Russia, China, and Cuba, handing out Bibles and preaching about the God of salvation. Eventually, his good work became the charity we all know as Open Doors. And his name, Andrew Van Der Beel, or Brother Andrew, as he was more commonly known until his passing last year. God works through extraordinary people to do the most extraordinary things. Sorry, God works through ordinary people to do the most extraordinary things. They never look extraordinary to begin with, but God already has it all mapped out, doesn't he? And I mentioned Brother Andrew because his story stands in contrast to Jonah, the rebellious prophet from our Bible reading this morning. Whereas Brother Andrew ran headlong into the dangers before him, Jonah runs away. And even though we'd love to identify more with Brother Andrew... Then Jonah, if we looked at our lives over the years, there are moments when we have run away from the Lord, aren't there? Not physically, but spiritually. It's, it's sometimes over big things like a love affair or a relationship that's broken down. And those things have consumed us to the point that we just can't take it anymore. Or more often than not, it's been something more smaller in our lives, more mundane like pouring more time into our work rather than God, showing contempt towards friends and families, uh, going through the motions at church or indulging in our addictions. So why do we do it? Why do we run away from the Lord? And why, do, why is it so easy to run away from the Lord? Indeed, what are the warning signs that we should be looking for? Well, to help us, we're starting a quick two-week series on the book of Jonah. And as you know, it's a very famous Old Testament scripture uh, and a book, spoiler alert, that isn't about a whale. It's about God. And this morning, we're going to draw three truths about God that explain why Jonah runs away. And the first truth is he is the God who is always good. Now, you may not have ever picked this up before when you read the book of Jonah, but our passage starts differently to the other prophetic books in the Old Testament. Verse 2, the Lord tells Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Why is it very different to the others? Well, before now, uh, prophets have always stayed home. They've preached from the safety of Israel. Now, for the first time, the Lord shakes everything up by sending his prophet into the heart of darkness, so to speak. And as God himself explains from our verse there, Nineveh is an exceptionally wicked city of people. It's a, it was a real city, a major city in the powerful Assyrian Empire, a city uh, whose ruins still exist around Mosul, Iraq today. And both Bible, the Bible and history give us further clues about how wicked the Ninevites were. The book of Nahum, two books after the book of Jonah, describes Nineveh as a city full of blood. 
A city full of lies, full of plunder and never without victims. One that enslaves nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Likewise, an Assyrian king who lived a hundred years before Jonah, he, he brags in his writings how he would go around conquer nations and chop off the hands, the feet, the ears and the noses of enemy soldiers and burn others alive. And that's the censored version. You can understand why Jonah here isn't too happy once he hears God's command to go to Nineveh. It's like you or I being sent off to North Korea. We'd be trying to run out that door as quick as possible. But here's the thing. Jonah doesn't run away from God because he's scared of the Ninevites. Jonah runs away from God because he's angry with God. Now we need a little help from chapter 4 to understand why he's angry, but Jonah gives the most outrageous reason He thinks God is way too gracious and too compassionate. Too gracious and too compassionate. And if that sounds crazy, it is. You'd normally get angry with someone because they're a total jerk. You know, they're completely unloving and focused on themselves. You know, we've met those kind of people. You, You don't get angry at someone for being compassionate. What Jonah here is really saying is that he knows from his own nation's history that every time God pronounces judgment on Israel, it always comes with an offer of mercy. Jonah is angry because the Lord may extend that same mercy now to the Ninevites. Do you get that? It's, 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 if you do, it unlocks the entire book. God's judgment always comes with God's mercy. And because Jonah knows all about this mercy-judgment combination, he walks out the door. In fact, he flees. He, some Bible translations even say he flees from the presence of the Lord. Jonah would rather give up being a prophet than allowing a bunch of horrible, stinking, murderous, you know, scumbags like the Ninevites to be forgiven. So he jumps on board a ship bound for Tarshish in the west, which is as far as, as possible from Nineveh in the east. And it's here that Jonah makes his fatal mistake. He thinks he knows better than God. He thinks he knows better than God. In fact, there's a uh, sense of moral superiority over God by Jonah going on here. And because Jonah believes he's right and God's wrong, he shows his anger by ignoring God. He'll do what's best by himself, not God. Does that sound familiar? That's pretty much what the world thinks, isn't it? Uh, Tragically, however... Plenty of God's people also think this way as well. Last year, Arizona Christian University polled a thousand American church leaders, both Protestant and Catholic, and found remarkably that only 37% of these leaders uphold a biblical worldview. Evangelical pastors didn't fare much better at 51%. 
Too many of us think we know, uh, think, uh, we know better than God. We act like newspaper sub-editors crossing out the parts of the Bible that offends us or other people. Uh, we act like lawyers looking for loopholes or politicians trying to play both sides. And there's a quick test to tell if you think that you know better than God. It comes down to four little words. I wonder if you ever thought these words. I'll obey God if. I'll obey God if. I'll obey God if I can keep on doing what I want to do. I'll, uh, I'll obey God if I can love whom I want to love. I'll obey God if it costs me nothing. And ultimately what we're saying is, I want to be in control. I want to decide what's right and wrong. I want to be sovereign. I want to be God. But what Jonah forgets, and what we all forget in these situations, is why God asks him to obey him and trust him and follow him in the first place. Because the Lord is good. The Lord is good. And everything the Lord does is good. Everything. His word is always good. His purpose is always good. His actions are always good. And his outcomes are always good. Why? Because he is the source of goodness. Not one source, but the only source of goodness. All good things flow out from him. It's just as the psalmist writes, and which Jonah echoes later in chapter 4, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. God sends Jonah to Nineveh because he is good to all. He is compassionate to all, and he is rich in love to all. He wants the worst of sinners like the Ninevites to seek his goodness because he cares for his creation and wants it all to experience his overpowering goodness. His goodness turns, you know, the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and brings men first to the knees and then to their feet in praise. And because God is our only source of goodness, then we will never find goodness outside of God. We will never find goodness outside of God. If we try, and we all do, then we'll be just like men drinking from the ocean over and over again, wondering why we're always thirsty. Now, make, make no mistake, this doesn't rule out the real possibility that God will ask you to do something hard, costly, or even painful. Some things will look impossible, and you will be tempted to run away like Jonah. It may be going on beach mission or sharing the gospel with family or friends or walking away from a job or living single for a while. But the Lord is with you every step of the way. He never asks us to walk on a road that he himself hasn't built. He's already predetermined what's going to happen. It's never a surprise to him. God always knows what's best for us, not the other way around. Our best course of action is to stay the course and allow the God who is always good to work his goodness through us. 
Brother Andrew had no guarantees that he would drive through that border crossing into Yugoslavia. But he sought the Lord's goodness through prayer to do the Lord's goodness. Jonah had every guarantee that the Lord would be with him in Nineveh, but instead he lets his anger get the better of him and he runs away. Which leads us to our second truth about the Lord. He is the God who pursues. Now, God has every right to abandon his rebellious prophet at this stage. It's what the world would do. But as we see, the Lord shows his unequaled goodness once again by chasing after Jonah. He pursues him. The Lord even sends a great wind on the sea, verse 4, which in the original Hebrew conveys the sense of God hurling the wind down like a javelin. And so a storm erupts and threatens to sink the ship and all hands on board. Now, you're probably wondering, well, how is a storm? How is this power, uh, this uh, power of destruction, how is it good? Well, the Lord is actually trying to stop Jonah from self-destruction. And sometimes that means using the, the hardest of hammers or the heaviest of hammers to crack the hardest of hearts. But what is Jonah's response in our passage? He sleeps. He sleeps with the confidence of a man who trusts in his own goodness. But unfortunately, the crew don't share in that confidence. They're desperately throwing stuff overboard, praying to their own gods and losing their minds that the ship is sinking. Everything that they've put their faith in, it doesn't seem to be working. Nothing's going to rescue them from death. In a mad panic, the captain, verse 6, finally wakes Jonah up and demands that he pray to his God. But does he? No, not until uh, chapter 2, after he's in the belly of the giant fish, after he's been cast overboard. Jonah's physically awake, but he's spiritually asleep. And that's why when the crew demands to tell, uh, tell them who he is, his confession in verse, verse 9 sounds incredibly hollow. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. If Jonah truly did worship the Lord, if he believed that God was in charge of the sea, he'd be on his knees praying and leading the sailors in repentance. Instead, he stands around doing nothing, condemning himself and the entire crew to being tossed into the Mediterranean. And that's why this is such an incredibly uh, tragic and ironic scene. The sailors, the type of pagans Jonah didn't want to see saved, end up being the ones who cry out to the Lord for mercy, verse 14, and making sacrifices and vows to him, verse 16. They not only run towards God, they sprint all the while while Jonah keeps running away from him. And the reason for Jonah's stubbornness is fairly common. It's the, it's the one thing every person must have. We all must have a holy fear of God. Do you sense that in the passage? Jonah needs more than just knowing that God is powerful and in control. He also needs a genuine awe and reverence for the Lord. He needs a holy fear of God because even though the Lord has every right to sink that ship and take Jonah down with it, he doesn't. He extends mercy to Jonah and all the crew. 
and does it again when Jonah's tossed overboard with the giant fish. Jonah also needs a holy fear of God because the Lord does get angry about sin. He has all the power of the universe at his disposal to punish wicked people and that his justice is deserving. It's just as Proverbs 14 teaches us that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life turning a person from the snares of death. Except in his anger, Jonah doesn't show any fear of the Lord. He does what most people do. He remains self-centered, self-righteous and hard-hearted. He won't appeal to God's mercy amid God's judgment out of that stubbornness. And so pride becomes the anchor that threatens to drown him and he holds it on to it for dear life with both hands. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but the image of God pursuing his rebellious children to the ends of the earth is one of the most beautiful pictures we have of our Lord. Here we have a God who first shows incredible restraint in not punishing Joanna, but then a heart that swells with worry and care for his prophet so much that he refuses to give up on him despite that stubbornness. And isn't that the kind of God that you want chasing after you in your worst moments? And Jonah's story is not a one-off by the Lord. We see it in the Garden of Eden when God sought after Adam and Eve after they sinned. We see it all the way throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, especially when God calls back his people when they're sent into exile. We see it with the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And we see it the most at the cross. Jesus pursues everyone through his death and resurrection. He won't stop until the very last soul gives his or her life to him and the trumpets are sounded. He endured the crucifixion and the tomb to prove it. And if you ever doubt God's immense goodness, imagine the opposite scenario, a God who couldn't care less when you stuffed up, when you have gone astray. A God who only delivered judgment and refused to show any mercy to you whatsoever. The Scottish-American pastor, Alistair Begg, puts it this way. For us, the Christian life has been a series of new beginnings. It has not all been plain sailing. We have not done everything right every day. We uh, We have not proceeded in the right direction every time. We have known ourselves to have been, at least metaphorically, with the seaweed wrapped around our heads and suffocating as a result of our own disobedience. Thank God he has chosen not to say, fine, if that's the way you want it, go ahead and drown. And he's right, isn't he? Only someone who loves us deeply will go to ridiculous lengths to pursue us into the deepest holes, the darkest of, prins- uh, the darkest of prisons, and to the, very, uh, to the very gates of hell itself, if need be. And that someone is the Lord. He is the God who pursues us. Which brings us to our last truth. He is the God who saves. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, chapter 2 famously tells of how Jonah comes to his senses in the belly of the giant fish. And after three days and three nights, he is eventually vomited onto dry land. Two important things happen before then. Firstly, 
He finally prays. Verse 2, in my distress, I called on the Lord and he answered me. Jonah has to sink to the realm of the dead before he develops a holy fear of God. And secondly, Jonah remembers. Jonah remembers, verse 4 and 7, God's holy temple. Why God's holy temple? Because during Jonah's time, the temple in Jerusalem was where God's presence and his seat of mercy were found. The only way Israelites were forgiven was by offering sacrifices physically at that temple. But because he's not in Jerusalem and instead in the belly of a huge fish, all Jonah can do is remember the Lord's mercy and trust that the Lord will extend it to him even here. And so completely humbled, our rebellious prophet finally surrenders to God and exclaims the book's great verse, verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. And if you walk out of church here today going, I can't remember anything this guy said, make sure it's that verse, salvation comes from the Lord. It's the same truth that has comforted millions of Jonas who have run away from hit the Lord over the centuries. Except that we today don't have to remember Jerusalem, but Jesus the same Jesus who obeyed God the Father even though he sweated blood from the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same Jesus who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth after being crucified on a wooden cross. The same Jesus who took the wrath of God upon himself in our place so that we could escape judgment. The same Jesus who rose again from the dead because he was sinless. The same Jesus who now offers eternal life to all who have a holy fear of him. And when you remember who Jesus is and what he has done for you, it's madness to even consider running away from him, right? His ways are infinitely better than ours. His desires are infinitely better than our desires. His plans are infinitely better than our plans. We should be running towards Jesus all the time, running away from him, rather than running away from him. Because when you boil down to it, life only offers us two choices. Salvation either comes from the Lord or the world. You run towards one and away from the other. You can't run towards both. You can't run away from both. You only get to choose one. And as most of us learn the hard way, the world cannot save us. There is no salvation in the world. In fact, the world will eventually destroy us. We want freedom. We want to be in control. And we want to decide what's right and wrong, but only because we want to follow our own selfish desires. Desire that can never be satisfied outside of God's goodness. And so ultimately, the world becomes like a, a, night full, a nightclub full of people who are enjoying one last party before the coming judgment of the Lord. And his judgment is the one thing that no one can run away from. But on the other hand, if you run towards Jesus, then that's where you will find salvation, the only place that you will find salvation. You'll be saved from judgment because of Christ's mercy. He'll never turn you away. He will never turn his back on you. He'll never ignore you. He'll pursue you no matter how far you think you've run away from or how far you are from him now. He's already sunk into the realm of the dead and rescues all who cry out for him for help 
as was seen at the cross. And when you are saved, when you honour him by surrendering totally to his will and his word, you come to realise how wonderful and perfect and praiseworthy are the ways of our Lord. That Christ loves us infinitely more than we love ourselves, that he knows infinitely more than us, that his ways are infinitely better than our ways. Our hearts will be overcome with what Jonah calls in verse 9, shouts of grateful praise. That's what Brother Andrew knew going into Yugoslavia with nothing more than a prayer and a a carload of Bibles. He wanted to share the gospel of Christ with others so that they could experience that same salvation that comes from the Lord. So when the Lord calls on you to do the hard things, friends, don't be afraid to answer him. Answer him with a holy fear. Have faith that his purposes are always good because he is a good God. Because when God the Father called upon Jesus to die for us, Jesus didn't run away. He went to the cross willingly, lovingly, and sacrificially. He treasured us more than life itself, and we continue to experience his goodness today. Salvation comes from the Lord, and he wants everyone to be running towards him. Let us pray. Dear Lord God Almighty, you are a God who is good, you are a God who pursues us, and you are a God who saves. And we pray, Lord, that when our hearts are tempted to run away from all of you, Lord, we pray, remind us of your goodness. Do not let go, let go of us as you promised, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we keep on looking towards that cross. You are an obedient God, Jesus. You obeyed the Father by dying for us. And we pray, Lord, that we're always remember, remember you on that cross and that we always run towards you. And all God's people said, Amen.